I have a, I have a question for you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Can you fold a map? Well, it depends on what kind of folding you want to do. Mm, not like, um, or, like origami. Yeah. So I worked, you know, I have a bit of a background in mapping and I picked up some skills. Everyone thinks that mapping has gone all digital, but that's not, not true. A lot of paper mapping still going on, especially in, you know, industry and engineering places. They love paper maps. Um, so I would say that my skill is more on rolling maps. Mm. I can definitely roll a, a, a map well. And the trick is everyone thinks, you know, you roll it up with the map on the inside, but then when you go to unroll it, it just wants to curl back up. The trick is you roll it with the map image you want to see on the outside. I see. And it, it's easier. Um, but I feel like your question is a little bit leading. I feel like you have some type of riddle or something behind behind it. I want to get to this. Like, I want to I want to pause on this unrolling the map. So, like, you unroll the map, and I get it. You don't want it to curl up, right? But doesn't it just kind of suck up mm. into itself? Do you have to like have a bunch of coffee cups sitting around so you can stack it on all it's the easier, end? It's mm. easier. It's easier to to kind of uncrease it and kind of flatten it than it is to like place four coffee coffee cups on the, the edges there. So it's not perfect. You, you, ideally, you would just never have to fold or roll a map, but it's better than the alternative. I mean, that's got to be a pretty big map too. Yeah. That's not the kind of map that, you know, you had when you were a kid on a road trip. Right. You get out and you like set it on, you know, you, you unfold it, the folded maps, you lay it out on the hood. Do you remember the, the, yeah, that was a golden age, mm. but do you remember the brief kind of 10 year period where people were printing out uh, MapQuest and, and then later Google Maps, like on, you know, two page, pages of paper and bringing that with them. And then, so it was like, those things got invented. People had the home PCs and the home printers. They were printing them out when they were going just like an hour away or something like that. And then cell phones or mobile phones came around with kind of mapping in them yes were you I, part of that i do that remember that it was you know i didn't have a printer at home but i would print them at work which i think is where you know most mm. people are printing their personal things at work that's what printers at work are for right right exactly <laughs> so yeah yeah because i think google had a, it was laid out specially i mean maybe it still is if you do a print it would like kind of lay the map out in a certain way so that it was on one page and then it would have all the driving directions on another page Mm -hmm. It's very helpful. Yeah. There is a CSS property I just learned about like two months ago that you can basically say, hey, this block, please don't, if it's in printing, if you're printing it, mm -hmm. don't spread it across two pages if you can help it. I can't remember what the name of that property is, but it was very useful. I'm going to look it up right now. Wow. Does, uh, so does it like adjust the proportions? Well, it, it just tries its best and it will um, throw in some white space at the bottom hmm. um, or, or uh, at the top of the next page, I think, maybe. I can't exactly remember how it works, but yeah, it was like fit in one page. What's it called? Uh, page after break always is a property or pre page break after. Oh, no, always. I this has been around for a long time. I remember this from when I 
was tasked for, with building uh, web apps that were basically reports that people would print off mm. to look at instead of just looking at them on the screen. That's uh, exactly what I used it for. Yeah. I used it for a report uh, based in HTML um, that they wanted to print instead of printing to PDF. Or I guess that's ultimately what they did. They would print the page and become PDF. But yeah. I will tell you the uh, another trick that I used to use a lot that I'm not really proud of was if you wanted to open something in Excel, if you uh, if you just produce an HTML, I don't know if this is still true, but if you produce an HTML table, like an old-fashioned table, put your data in there, mm -hmm. and then tell, like use a MIME type of Excel, mm. Excel will just open it up, no problem. Now, are you just sending back the table element with all of its no, children, the whole or do you also... The whole page, the whole page. This Will it just find the first table or what? I don't, I don't recall that I ever tried multiple tables. I don't think you're getting any fancy. This is something like, where you, I feel like we need to experiment with. Yeah, I mean, Excel's got all kinds of new properties now. I wonder if it would divide the tables across, um, you know, multiple sheets or, or whatever workbooks or whatever they call them. I bet there is a company out there whose entire workflow is what you just described. And they would like go out of business if Excel changed that one feature. It could be. I do. The reason I'm not very proud of it is because you know, I was a young dev at the time and I was working somewhere where we, you know, we didn't have the best technologies necessarily. And nobody like considered CSV. Mm. That was the real, that was probably the thing that would have been a better solution. We, you know, we had commas at the time. They were a known technology. Yeah. Yeah. I think recently invented, but they were known. Yeah. They, they kind of went, uh, they went big when commas came out. I remember that. Um, I was actually, I was on a walk right before this and I was thinking about how great the CSV format is because. That, um, so, wait, say you, so you're going on a walk, you're out in nature, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And you're well, just enjoying it. enough, but sure. Well, you're in your neighborhood, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Which is nature, I mean, compared to some. Mm -hmm. Like, you've got space between your houses out there and your house. Sure. Right? Yep. You don't have any sidewalks to, to limit you. Right? And so, Correct. you're out there enjoying the world, and your thought is, you know, CSV is handy. That was, that was something. Hold on one second. I'll cut this out of the podcast. My family is. I'm still going to cut this out. Sorry. That's all right. Mary actually just went in the kitchen and now is doing something too. Yeah. But I'm anxious to explain myself. You should. It's, it's not. I'm going to turn the fan off for a minute. It's hot in here. Yeah, I so say you just make yourself comfortable. Really? You can't see me, so. Well. I turned it on high. Did you already speed. turn it on? I turned it on high. That doesn't click as much, but it's like blowy. Still waiting for them to go away. All right. We might have some noise. I, you know, we might have to accept a little noise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Until we get the professional studio. We can get, you can order those, right? You can order like a, essentially a coffin that's upright. Yep. Yeah. 
kind of expensive. I think seven hundred dollars, right. something like that. What if you made your own? You could just, you know, I feel like there's enough construction mm. sites around my house <laughs> that I could find make your parts. own coffin. There's yeah, I get some plywood and some insulation. Maybe put a few holes in there. All right, you ready to go again? Is the audio okay? I think it's fine. I think you're right. We're going to have to accept just a little bit of noise, but Are you, I mean, the fan is okay. Faint. Yeah. Mary's quick, you know, maybe I might pick up. I, I really, I don't feel like I, I got a good option for the directionality of this mic. Mm. I'm on what I think is the right in front of it, you know, like with it pointing mm-hmm. at my face mode, which I was hoping would mm-hmm. be the most direct and least picking up ambient noise. Because mm-hmm. the other ones are like two sided, you know. Yep. And one of them, and one of them is broad. Everything. And those are the only four I have. So this is the best I got. Play it the, earlier when you couldn't hear me as well. I was playing with a different setting because it was one of the sideways, one of the side to side ones. But. Do you have it on a uh, on the third or second setting? It's like between the yeah. one that looks like an eight. Yes, like the a- second setting. Second setting. All right. I mean, that's the one that seems the most because because of the background noise. I didn't want the the other side. Yeah. But maybe I could no, that, maybe I could put some, right one. I could put something in like behind the mic maybe that would block the sound. All right. This is what I'm doing. I don't know. Okay. Do you want to have? I'm ready to explain. I want to explain myself about the uh, CSV. I was I was thinking about the JSON format, and if you no, no you can't ex- hold on. You can't explain why you were thinking about a CSV on a nature walk by starting with well, I happen to be thinking about JSON. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I didn't start thinking about CSV. I was actually thinking about logging <laughs> and using the JSON format to log, or another format like XML, and how it uh, there's a performance hit i think so i've never written the logger before i've only used them and i imagine that if you're using the json format right it has a a beginning bracket and an ending bracket and if you want to put something a new item in there you're going to have to kind of make sure you're in you can't write at the append to the end of the file right you need to get it inside that ending bracket and well that's all solved if you're just using plain text or or csv which is even better right you can just keep on appending to that file and never have to worry about did i make it inside the uh the right tags Mm. right you know elements and so i was just extolling the uh the csv format for its simplicity i see no i mean i don't disagree with I think it's a, you know, so you're, you're not, your, your performance concerns are when it comes to writing. So yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Performance. But I, I wonder, so I need to research this. I, I wonder if like, obviously I think this seems like a, a known problem, but I have no idea what people that are into logging do about it. Yeah, it seems like we're moving away at least kind of the more advanced uh, loggers are moving away from that and you just write to standard out and some magical logging monitor thing just sucks that all in and it it 
has optimized away that stuff, you know, away from your application. So it doesn't even matter, really. Uh, just kind of thinking about that. Curious how, how that all works. Yeah, I like that. I like the standard out thing. It's a lot more flexible. It's, you know, take advantage of what, you know, Unix is supposed to be in and out. But <laughs> no, it, we're not know, talking about that today. We're not talking we're not about that. We're not, that. Okay, we're not no, going to. So no, no, don't no, you bring up I any Unix principles. I won't. I'm sorry. I will we're say. We're saving that. It's nice, you know, the writing standard out gives you that flexibility to have like distributed logging. Right? You, yeah. don't, you don't have a single log file that you have to deal with. No, I think that's the way to go. I think if you, I mean, there's there's performance implications there because writing to standard out, I believe, you know, is a kind of a blocking, or at least if you've got the console. Yeah, but open. it's not actually it's not actually going anywhere on a screen. Right. Yeah. If you're deployed to production, but yeah. uh, it does look very slow if you've got lots of logging and you're running locally on your machine. Um, but yeah, just kind of batching that stuff. I think it's the fastest and, like you said, most flexible. I mean, my guess, if I was writing, if I was writing JSON to a log file, I would probably uh, just not write that closing. If I had like a like an array, I wouldn't just write. I wouldn't write mm -hmm. the closing square bracket. I would, you know, write it whenever somebody you know closed the log file, or you know, maybe right. try to catch an exception or something. I don't know. This is like the perfect use for a cron job, right? So you just have like you, at the beginning of the day, you write a file. This is my log file for the day. And it puts a, and appends a, an open brace in there. And then your um, logger will just continuously write entries. Um, and then at the end of the day, at 11.59.59 seconds, another cron job kicks off and, and injects that closing curly brace. That's right. That's there. its job. That's its job. It's just the curly brace opener and closer. It doesn't even have to open. It's just the closer. Yeah. Right? So. I like that. Well, maybe you can be the same program um, and it just looks at the time. Am I, you know, my AM? Okay, I'm an opener. My BM, I'm closer. Well, you know, the Unix philosophy says you should only have single purpose for all your... Uh, I say it, I don't want to talk about <clears throat> Unix. I don't want to talk about Unix. Okay. So... got to save that. You can roll a map. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't... My folding game, I don't know. I don't know what criteria to even judge that on. Well... When you get a map, so now, now our listener may not understand maps. Well, we don't even know what year they're possibly listening to this in. Yeah. So we, the idea of like a paper map, you know, if, if somehow they are uh, listening to this when the world has been flooded due to climate change, um, you know, some type of Kevin Costner war world scenario, paper is very rare in that world. I'm not sure how they're listening to this, but yeah, I feel like a world where, there, where paper is, you know, a world where paper is obsolete is one thing, but a world where the technology to make paper is, is not there, it's probably not a world where they're worried about our thoughts on software development, hmm. that sort of thing, to be honest with you. Just I mean, I guess what we, if this is the only thing that survives? What if it's the only, like, you know, they just gather around the fire? in the, the dwindling days of humanity and, and they just listen to us. They, tr of, 
for whatever reason, a treasure trove of uh, some type of hard disk survived and they have the means to play it back. Uh, but this is the only thing. I mean, those, those poor people. I feel like, yeah, I feel like um, it, it does. It is telling that, you know, your, your thought about anyone who might listen to our podcast, it just immediately jumps to desperation. Basically just they're, they need to hear voices other than their, the people in their community. Right. They don't care about the content. It's just the warm, dulcet tones. That's all. Right. And that's why we put so much effort into just sounding good and not content. Indeed. Yes. I'm sure this is the best sounding we've been so far. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. So I have to know what, what is this, uh, what is this business about folding maps? Well, I was just thinking about maps, you know, um, how how maps you know we talk about the we talk about the word map and outside of software development terms and we, we mean a an image that sort of shows us a uh, an abstraction of the world around us you know maybe uh, a state a city a country a planet a mall that sort of thing um and so we can use that word map like and everybody knows what you're talking about. They might not know you're talking about paper. If you're talking about folding, they might figure you're talking about paper. But maybe it's on on your phone or your screen or something like that, or some sort of heads-up display. Um, but in software development, we talk about mapping and maps is kind of a different sort of thing, right? So it's a more it's a broader term. It's a little bit of a more generic term than what we use in, in everyday language. You know, because it's basically associating something over here on one side of the world with something else on another side. So the relationship between one thing and another. Yeah. Right. Is that bringing us closer to our main topic? Yes. <laughs> well, how so? <laughs> well, what is our main topic? I think we wanted to talk about uh, ORMs and, you know, the object relation, re, object relational messes that they mm. create. I think uh, I think I should have used a different uh, intro because I was always thinking that it was an object relational mapping. Mm. Mm. Interesting. See, so, yeah, call that clever. I don't think we know. I don't think we fully understand what what ORM stand for. Is All there those great mysteries? One of the things that always intrigues me, have you ever seen it written with a slash? No. Like O slash R M. I think that's right. Not oh, wow. maybe O R slash M. I think it's O slash. Yeah. 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 I'm on the Wikipedia page now. Yeah. You're right. That is how they, they say that is done. I don't know um, why. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I understand that they're trying to draw a distinction that these are two separate worlds. Um, but then but mapper is just sense. tacked on to the end, right? Map, the word mapper is just right yeah. there. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what people are thinking. I think it should be O slash R ellipses M. <laughs> right. There, there's so many ways to, to spell this out. So it is a, an ORM is a kind of way to do like kind of mapping, I guess. So it sort of handles that. And basically anytime you're using a relational database and you're using a 
you know, a traditional programming language that has objects, um, you're, you're going to need to find some way to get the data from the objects into the relational tables, the, the model, and then some way to get it back, right? And to do that transformation. It's really, you know, that I guess mapping is fine and fair because an object might map to a table or some kind of group of tables. Or I guess an object graph might map to a group of tables. But like, it's really more of a translation piece, right? Either you're writing SQL to do it yourself or there's this mm -hmm. tool that does it for you. Well, I think of, of this kind of piece of the stack as sort of the bread and butter of application developers, right? Like application developers are, they want to get some data in, persist it, get the data out and show it to the user. Um, and most of the people that I know that are in that kind of application development world, they started with this concept. They didn't start at the front end. That's kind of a new concept. And the idea that, you know, we're going to let something else write our SQL for us, I feel like is in a way, it's like a foreign adversary. It's, it, it feels unnatural. And so there's this natural resistance to this idea of having a translation layer do something for us. And I feel like the industry is in a weird place right now trying to figure out, you know, it keeps on TikToking. And right now the, we're, we're, we're talking away from ORMs, it feels like. Is mm -hmm. that kind of your sense of the, the state of things right now? Well, I think a few years ago, people were trying to get away from ORMs, and but they also didn't want to write SQL. And so kind of the rise of a NoSQL database sort of came came mm -hmm. to, to the forefront. And that was going to solve both problems, right? You don't have the sort of weirdness of, a, of an ORM, and you don't have relational database trying to write SQL. Um, but I think, you know, those tools proved to be not universal, you know, fine tools, but not universally, you know, applicable or at least not, and, and, and not universally liked, I guess. Um, so maybe that was, what do you mean? Like, let, let, let's unpack that a little bit. Cause I feel that way myself, but, and I have noticed that for sure on Twitter, people saying, you know, just use a relational database. Don't complicate things. Don't use, you know, that thing that you found on GitHub that, that claims to be super fast. Like go for reliability. Relational databases are probably what you want. Um, so what, what do you attribute like this, the rise, the fall in a way of, of NoSQL to? Well, I don't, I, I don't know that I'll attribute to a fall. I think it's that regular curve of like, it's, it's new, it's scary, and then suddenly it's going to solve all of our problems, and then finally it's just a tool in your toolbox. That's where mm -hmm. I, I think that's where it is right now, um, which I think is a good place for it to be. Um, it seems like it kind of came around with the rise of microservices, and if you're just trying to store data and not report on that data, but just have your application data... Um, it, it makes sense for those smaller services, possibly. Uh, yeah. If like speed is not necessarily the thing you need. Well, it depends on what kind of speed, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think if um, you know, always you always hear about relational databases being really sort of geared for write speed you know, to save a record, but not for querying because you have to do all these joins and things. 
And if you're mm-hmm. saving a document, then you know you're really just getting everything all at once. It's just all there. You don't have to join it and put it all together. So like right. you know, the argument for a document database is that it's designed for read speed, which is what you do more often. I think. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, I personally was never a huge fan of like Mongo, not like conceptually, just, just, I don't know, wasn't, wasn't for me. Um, but I have really enjoyed using Azure Cosmos DB, which is kind of this multi-paradigm uh, database. And so I think there's, there's places for it. I think it, it makes things simple sometimes. Um, but ultimately I do agree that like, you, you need to prove to yourself that you don't need a relational database. And then if you, if you kind of pass that test, then, then you can go out and see what NoSQL has to offer. So why do you think that is? Like why, why do I think why relational is, databases yeah, are wh- the, Why is that the default? I think there's just such a history and such a, a wealth of information and skill. And, and if you're thinking about long-term, not just pure technical, uh, hey, I want to build this thing, um, and I'm interested in just the technology. That if you're building something to last, that can be maintained and worked on by people over a long period of time, relational databases have that kind of history. And maybe that's not a very good reason. You know, it's sort of like why C and C++ persists because there's a lot of people that know how to do it and work on it, and there's just the history. And it was like, well, it was here first in a way, so it kind of wins. Hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of reasons when, when it comes to sort of maintainability and understandability. Well, you get a foothold. I guess the technology gets a foothold and, and there's existing tech, you know, existing systems using that technology. So you have to understand it in order to maintain those exist, existing systems. And then once you already understand it, like why not use it for some future system, right? That, I mean... Well, it's really not an argument about it being the best tool. It's like the tool that you know, but the tool that you know might be the best tool if you have to worry about getting something done more quickly or you're worried about quality, which, you know, is probably true of everybody. Yeah, and I think that the vendors also have an advantage of just optimizations over time. I mean, I think about like compilers and how smart they've gotten. And you might have a new language come out that you really like and the semantics and just using it in the ecosystem, whatever, but they need some more time to develop those optimizations. And the, the big relational databases that we have today are really well optimized. So I don't know. I think that that's, that's a huge point in their favor. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The thing, to be honest with you, I haven't done a whole lot of work with, non-relational databases. Um, so most of my career, all I'm just thinking back, like, I don't know, maybe one time I used a no SQL sort of data storage in production. Um, so it's always been a relational database. And the thing that gets me that sort of interests me about document databases, or I don't really feel like I understand because it kind of doesn't seem like a good idea is it does seem to have a lack of relationships. So maybe this is my ignorance. Um, But if you want to, you know, denote relationships between entities, you just put them in the same document. But Mm. then you end up with duplication, right? Right. Across documents. Yeah, you got to disavow some of those principles that you've committed to, you know? 
keeping it dry and, and keeping things sort of normalized. Um, you got to not worry about that. And I think that there's a lot of things that are going on in our world that we have to forget because, or we have to come to terms with maybe because storage is so cheap now, right? Like it doesn't matter. Let's just make a backup. Just, you know, lots of data flying everywhere. I don't think we worry about efficiency of our code as much anymore because we can just easily purchase more power. Um, now that's not as true. Like when you're running in a cloud scenario and you see the amount things cost mm. rather than just having kind of a sunk cost. So maybe it's coming back around and people are worrying about those things a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's not like, that the cost of storage coming down so much has, has really made people treat it uh, or take it for granted. It's, I mean, it's not so much for me. I mean, I agree that that was like one of the motivating principles of a relational database um, and having, you know, this table has all the, you know, this address that's in this table is used by all the, the people or whatever in the table that are at that address. But to me, it's more about consistency. You know, hmm. like what this address represents a place in the world and I only record it this one time and that enforces that I will, when I, if that changes in some way, if, if I want to add the last four digits of the zip code or whatever, I will do that in this one place and then it will be done. Right. Just have a thought. Hmm. Maybe this is something for us to explore another time, but it'd be interesting to think about technologies, um, in the context of the time period that they were created, like, so going back to kind of the, the seventies when relational databases were really starting to, to come together, um, resources were, were scarce, right? You had to be, you had to optimize space, mm -hmm. um, and speed because that you just didn't have the, the resources and, you know, the hardware, but now, it's not so much about that. It would be more about like optimizing for security, for example, or, or something else that, that is well, a well-known problem that we have today. So just kind of understanding the context in which things are created would be a fun exercise to see if that's where they do push their optimizations. Yeah, I think, I think that is interesting because it's the constraints of yesterday are not the same as today. And so maybe, you know, we're, like we said earlier, you're doing it because it's traditional and because we've always done it that way. That, that The reason we started doing it that way were because of constraints that no longer exist. And that, you know, that is something that I think we should explore. And I think, you know, when new technology comes around, a lot of times people make that, that case. Because tradition is never the right reason. It's not a sufficient reason, at least, to do, to continue doing something. I, I don't think that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one, too. Like. Just every, a lot of people say, well, we, this is, you know, precedented. Or this is the precedent for this or whatever. And I have a kind of a philosophical disagreement with that logic. But anyway, uh, what were we talking about? ORMs? We had said the letters ORM. We said sometimes there's a slash in there. Yeah. I think we went, we did our thing where we started going back, back in history and hmm. we lost a little bit. Um, so I'm curious. I know where I stand. Where do you stand? Where do you stand on ORMs? Hmm. Are you are you going to give a it depends answer? Well, 
So, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind, of course, because that's always the right mm -hmm. answer. <clears throat> maybe I should give the controversial answer. Or maybe I should give, I don't know which one that would be. But I want to, you know, I think we, we want to go for controversy. We want to, you know, excite our listener. Right. Get, get their blood boiling. Yeah. Um, I have gone back and forth on ORMs. Um, I've never been a huge fan of like having to write SQL. I've never been a huge fan of like having, you know, magic strings in my code and essentially a SQL statement or, you know, uh, is a magic string that you have to make sure you test well. Hmm. Um, so I think uh, those are constraints. Those are kind of values, not constraints, but those are values of how like, I don't like the magic string, but I don't necessarily like writing SQL. Um, but I also like having maybe control. Maybe I do like having control, but that's not exactly what I mean. I, I sort of like being able to understand my system, you know? Mm. And I guess, you know, I think early on the promise of an ORM was that, and maybe this was not the advertised promise, but the message that I heard was that you do use this tool and you call this method or whatever, and you get back an object or a fully realized object graph. It's all the things that you want and you don't have to worry about it. You call this other method, you pass an object and it will go save it, persist it to the database. And so like the promise again, or at least the, the message that I got from that was, I don't have to worry about how this ORM works. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, it, it just trusts the magic. Uh, and so that caused that works some of the time. And sometimes it caused me problems, you know, performance problems or not understanding. And over time, I slowly had to keep, start digging deeper and deeper into the ORMs I, re, I was using and understanding them more and more. And at a certain point, I was like, why don't I just write SQL? Like, why, I don't, I, I have to understand too much of what's happening here for this special tool, the special purpose thing. Uh, and it would just be faster and it would be a simpler code base in the end if I was able to just write SQL. Now, like mm -hmm. so, that's not always true. You know, some basic, simple CRUD stuff, you could argue that the code base is a lot simpler when it comes to using an ORM. At least there's fewer lines of code. It may be easier to, to, to absorb in one, you know, one reading or whatever. But once you get to those complicated edge cases, like I, I think just writing a SQL statement better and i guess some orms allow you to sort of bridge that gap maybe cheat a little bit and you could always cheat in this area over here but then you have two different ways you're accessing the database um so in the end i think i've kind of come around to not really being a fan of orms now i know like we're you know in the c-sharp space you and i um and Dapper is a common option for people who like want to remove some of the boilerplate code that comes with writing sort of raw ADO.NET code. Um, so Dapper's lightweight ORM where you still write SQL, but it also, it turn, it return, um, it converts the results of that SQL into objects. It does a lot of the time, but then you have to do some work. You have to sort of you know, do some of that mapping yourself as well. And I think mm -hmm. Dapper's a nice tool. Um, so I think, you know, if I was working on a project, 
Um, I might, I might try that. I've done, I feel like I've done Dapper maybe one time in production somewhere. So I think I would give it a shot, but I've not really done enough with it to say for sure. I think it had, it's had promise of being relatively simple and comprehensible and also removing some of the redundancy, but something like in hibernate or entity framework, I've just been turned off by those to be honest with you. Yeah. I think we're on the same page. Um, I am totally in agreement about magic strings. I hate magic strings. Um, that's a whole other separate rant about languages, you know, forcing me to, to put a string in like it's another data type when really I want like a nice templating thing. But anyway, I'll save that for later. Um, yeah, I think in simple cases, ORMs work. In complex cases, ORMs are, they get in the way and they make things harder. And then sometimes you have to end up using raw, you know, just plain SQL anyway. Um, and I guess for me, if I am going to have to understand SQL outside the context of the application and keep those skills up, why would I not just use it in the application as well? Um, you know, if I'm building the tables, the views, and all that good stuff, I, I don't see a lot of benefit anymore to the ORM. Um, in fact, it, it, it kind of gets in the way and is a, a lot, a source of a lot of pain. Now, I, I've moved away from, from ADO.net, and there was pain there too. And I think that leads to a lot of ugly kind of messy code and there, there's ways to mitigate that certainly with some good programming practices, but at the end of the day, I'm in, I'm in agreement. Like I would rather just use, just write my own SQL or yeah, like a micro RM possibly. I think Dapper is a good choice. There's a few other ones in the .NET space. Um, so it, it could be one of those things though, like it's not necessarily the best of both worlds. It's, it's actually the worst of both worlds. Um, yeah. So it's, just, I, it's not, it's not, it, it truly is a hard problem. The object relational problem is a hard one. And, you know, I, I feel like that the, the no SQL people had interesting ideas. I don't agree with that solution either. So I don't know. But I, think I know that I don't want to use ORMs. No persistence. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the answer. I just want as much memory. I just want petabytes of memory, and I'll just keep everything alive forever. There you go. That's perfect. Just have a few, you know, UPSs back there somewhere. Right. You know, keep the power on. Um, right. I mean, I... I don't know. I think, you know, something that's interesting, like something like Redis, you might make that case because that's essentially like an in-memory store that will like write to disk once in a while or whatever, as I understand it. Um, right. But I don't know, you know, like that would be, that would be, it'd be really nice actually to just say, I would just like to persist. I mean, the promise of an ORM is really nice. I would just like to persist this object graph to a uh -huh. data store somewhere. And so you can do that with an ORM at least for a while, at least in some cases. Um, one of the things that you said earlier was like, you know, an ORM works for a while and then it doesn't. I, I would say a lot of times you, you can make an ORM work. So once you have to make it work, that's when it starts to like wear at me. You know, I just want the mm -hmm. tool to do the job. I mean, I, I don't know. 
Maybe I'm just lazy that way. Um, yeah. Well, but I think I think it would be nice to just be able to have that promise. Like I'm just going to persist this object, or this, like I said, this bunch of objects, to some data store. Like I'm going to want them later. Which is again, you know, maybe that's a. There was a a brief time I haven't heard people talk about object databases in you know over ten years now. I think. Um, but that was this idea that you would just persist your objects to the database and whatever binary serialization happened with those things and put them on disk somewhere, you could always just get them back. And that becomes yeah. that, that, you know, that's sort of a NoSQL thing too, which, you know, there, NoSQL is not just one thing. Um, but then you have dangerous secure from a security perspective, uh, deserializing binary back into objects could be. Super dangerous, but that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, if if somebody sort of owned that, um, if they own, if they've got access to your data store somehow, or were able to manipulate it, I don't, I don't know that you would get necessarily methods or functionality when you serialize those things. So, you know, it might not be that much more problematic than um, than somebody getting access to your relational database. I don't know. Maybe it would be. Um, how do you feel about, um, maybe I'll just ask this generally, but I kind of think about ORMs like, um, generated code where you just say, Hey, here's my database, uh, generate all the translation layers. Just keep it, keep it in sync. I don't want to touch it. Um, in fact, prevent me from touching it if you can, and just generate all this code for me. Do you like those kinds of tools? I, I guess I really, I really don't like those sort of tools. I, I got burned, I think, by the early days of you know web forms and ASP.NET tooling that would do a lot of that stuff for you and just kind of build a whole application for you from given a mm-hmm. database. Um, mm-hmm. And those sort of tools, it's it's that problem with a lot of generated code, which they get you eighty percent of the way there, and then they just leave you there. You know, like you, you get eighty mm-hmm. percent of the way to Los Angeles, and now you're in the desert, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I think that we've seen that as an industry, like that promise of generated code or, or converting projects from, from VB to, to C sharp or whatever, you know, um, and it, it'll do it all for you or whatever. They finally cracked, cracked it on, the on generating all the stuff, but yeah, it, it never goes all the way. Uh, and then, then you're left in the space where, well, okay, I got to apply these changes, but then the next time I need to regenerate this, all that stuff will go away. So how do I, how do I do that? And yeah, I hate that too. I remember anti-generated code. I remember when Microsoft introduced partial classes, they're like, this is, Mm -hmm. this is the right solution. This is going to be it. So we can generate half this class for you. Then you write the rest. (laughs) So you can always regenerate. And like that. I just remember thinking, this is not the right way to go here. Like maybe we should do less code generation and not have to, you know, mutate or, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Like unnecessarily mutate this language to make it fit your tooling. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a fan. And frankly, I don't even, I don't even know what a partial method is. I'm, I don't know. I don't understand what's going on there. Yeah, the, I don't understand either. Um, one thing you touched on earlier was performance, you know, and I assume you mean kind of performance and time while the application is running. 
Um, and that's not something I hear a lot of people talk about. And again, maybe that kind of goes back to the, it's, it's a bit taken for granted. So we, we both can agree, I think, that ORMs are obviously less performant than just pure um, SQL. Uh, but is it enough of a hit that you think people are, are truly worried about that? Truly worried about performance of an ORM? Or is it more about the main, maintenance and all that? Well, I worked somewhere for a couple of years, uh, several years ago, that that was uh, definitely their concern. Um, mm. They did not, we did not use ORMs. We just used pure ADO.net. Um, we used store procedures. That's a sort of a different mm-hmm. thing. But it was all, it was purely performance-based. And at that mm. point, um, that was when I was really like, we should be using an ORM. I hate writing. I'm writing all these you know, using command and, you know, creating, uh, I'm sorry, using connection and opening the connection and using a command and getting a reader, blah, 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 all that stuff. Right. And I was so tired of doing it. And, and again, that's a place where sometimes you end up with magic strings. And then we had all these constants for the names of the columns and stuff. And it was just, it, I don't know, it was very, it, it was really painful. And so I was like, well, maybe an ORM is the right answer to this. Uh, and then I went and worked somewhere where we used ORMs and realized maybe it wasn't. But explicitly, the the um, the the argument that they made was performance. I mean, they had millions of users. They were like there were several. You know, they had already had. I think at the time I was there, uh, this was it was a little bit pre-cloud. They, they might still not be in the cloud actually, but they had nine con, you know concurrent web servers or something like that. Um, for millions of users, and they were really you know concerned about that performance, the overhead of. They probably would have used Entity Framework, but even in Hibernate, either one uh, was not really an option with them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. And when you're measuring that stuff, you, you know, the performance difference is, is obvious, but some, you know, we'll talk about like computer time versus human time. And I think this sort of gets at the crux of the issue for, for me is that, yes, it takes longer in the computer time the idea would be that it would be less of a, in in human terms, but it really ends up not being right. In my opinion, like when you're using an ORM and, and it, you have a medium to large size application, it it doesn't really speed you up that much. Do you mean de- for development time? You mean? Yeah, for development yeah. development time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it depends. Um, I think there's so much code to write when you're writing sort of you know raw ADO.net code, particularly that mm-hmm. somebody who's a junior or maybe even sort of like a little bit beyond a junior, that is still like a really painful experience, which is kind of where I was actually when I worked for this company. Um, and you get it wrong, but then when you do it enough and you get to a level where you know, you're a more senior person and that, you know, you just literally typed the, all that stuff in enough. Like I can just type it in my sleep right now. And so for me right mm-hmm. now, who I am as a developer today, I don't think that it saves me any time to use an ORM. Um, but I think there's a, there was a period of time in my career that it probably, that it, you might've been able to make that argument. That it would. You know, one of the things that you mentioned that I think ORMs are really, really good for, particularly in C-sharp, uh, and I'm not really 
familiar enough, maybe something like Ruby has this kind of benefit as well. Um, and that is the ability to sort of compose queries, but with link. Mm. I think that is a really super powerful thing that ORMs let you do. So you're not composing like string concatenation. You know, you're yeah. you're passing an I queryable around or whatever and just adding, you know, where's to it or whatever. I think that is super powerful that you, that you yeah. miss out on when you don't use an ORM. Or don't use specifically one that is like not Dapper doesn't let you do that either. So something that's like in Hibernate or Entity Framework. Yeah. Maybe that's where we need to push our attention to is kind of how do we do this better without magic strings? How can we write the SQL and have it be in our application code, but not, you know, just be floating variables out there. I don't know if um, source generators for .NET are going to be of any use in this space, um, but yeah, I'd well, like to see something different. Yeah, I don't know how to do that either. Currently do it. In, uh, in Hibernate, long ago, before they kind of, you know, embraced Link, they had this whole sort of criterion object or whatever that you would use. Uh -huh. And you would, it was essentially like a builder pattern to build out a query. Uh -huh. um, Link is better for sure. <laughs> you know, and, and they, and then I, when Link became an option, they, they switched to it eventually. Um, but something like that is still really an ORM. It's still like, you're still writing code in a language that can be checked by your compiler that will right. then be translated into C sharp. Unless you do something like, you know, VB did not long ago, VB.net, where they made XML literals a part of the language. And then you just yeah. made SQL a part of the language, um, which I don't, you know, I don't think that making XML part of the language is a good idea. And SQL, making SQL part of the language is probably impossible given, you know, yeah. different flavors of SQL, even if it wasn't right. a good idea. I don't know. I'm not so anti XML being in VB.net, but I, yeah, I do agree. I don't know how you would do that. You'd have to have some type of like a vendor uh, analyzer as part of your, your code to say like, yes, that, that validates against this version of the database or something like that. I don't, I don't know how that would work. Well, that's interesting. Like, you know, maybe not even worrying about that extra, you know, that but write You could write a, an analyzer that could analyze your SQL potentially. Maybe. Yeah. That could be part of your I think you process. Could, and then you would want it to you would want it to be intelligent enough not to just understand yes, this is valid syntax, but yes, this matches up with the the schema that you're targeting. You know, it'd have to be aware and, and communicate with the database. Kind of gets back to that. Um, maybe this will be a mute point in the future when we have like AI assisted programming and the AI is just running background, like looking at the database, looking at your code saying, hmm, I don't think that's right. Or, Hey, do you want me to finish that SQL statement for you? It looks like you're typing all of the, the columns. Right. I know um, you love the, the clippy future that we're all moving toward. I don't, I don't know if I love it. I am just, I am pre embracing it. I just, I want to be on the robot side. That's, that's not a bad position to be in, you know, embrace our future overlords. Yeah, I can just see it and feel it coming. So, um, I want to pretend to be like a. Don't a, pretend we're recording Cass this. Sandra. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. people will listen to this. Yeah. yeah. So you don't want you don't want the AI to hear you. <laughs> right. right. Well, they can detect it in my voice. They've got fifteen different metrics analyzing my sincerity. 
Um, it's not. It's not a lie so. if you believe it. You know. <laughs> well, I don't think well, we need to to beat this topic to death. I think ORMs are evil. Um, that's what I heard you say. So we shall not be using any ORMs anymore. Okay, how about this? Like, what if your your analyzer tool just ran the query in the database, just see if it blew up? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, some type of like backdoor that databases have that just lets you kind of like non-committable uh, transactions and say, "Hey, tell me if this works," and give you get, get a response code back, something like that. Yeah, I think that um, it would be interesting. To have a little bit more interaction, a little bit more like of a, in a way, an API or something with the database uh, and the application. And, and that just seems so hard given the, the number of databases and the number of applications or a number of um, languages. But well, now you're back to some kind of like NoSQL. You want, you want your database to have like a REST API or something. Yeah. I want to be able, I want my application code when I build it to also build a database that can run as its own separate process. And it just knows how to persist data. I could just connect it to a volume and say like, okay, when I generate this, it's going to generate a website and a database. Um, and it runs and it, you know, it's running in a container and it's connected to the storage volume and there's some versioning mechanism. I don't know how that would work, but. Yeah, I just want there to be more interaction, more understanding of each other. I think what I want, I want that too. I want the, I want magic tools that do all my work for me, but then <laughs> yes. I still want to get paid. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't want Most people to know about the tools. I want the tools to just be for me. Right. Right. Exactly. Right? Yes. Well, and I also, I mean, yes, I want to get paid, but I want to have fun too. So, and um, there's, there's got to be some challenge in there. So I mean, you could you just, could take up knitting or something. <laughs> just watch it build. Yeah, yeah. That's a interesting idea. Well, I think we're um, we're coming up on an hour, so. Okay. All right. I didn't even get to talk about graph databases. Oh no, that's a whole separate topic. All right. I don't know anything about graph databases. So next time you tell me about graph databases. That sounds great. I'll tell you all I know about graph databases, and then we'll fill the rest of the the. 55 minutes with just playful banter. That's good. Now, that's one of those deals where we claim that we're going to do something next time and we don't do it, right? <laughs> no, I think this time, I think we're on a roll now. I think we, uh, oh, you mean for the listener? Yeah. Uh, where yeah. we like I don't te wanna... tease them with the topic? Yeah, well, I think we should make empty promises to the listener. Yeah. Okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. People <laughs> like that. 